All right, guys, let's, let's, let's talk about discernment, which, which, which discerning where to plant churches. Um, okay, great. So learning discernment, I want to kind of get into, and so just so some of you may have had some good exposure to uh, transformation intensive. Well, you mentioned you're doing some studies, just in Ignatian spirituality. So if you have any background in that whatsoever, um, this is not discernment from an Ignatian perspective. I think it's very compatible with Ignatian discernment, but that is its own almost school of thought. So when you kind of get into discernment, teachings and discernment, spirituality is probably the best way to put it rather than theology, a discernment spirituality, you have a whole Ignatian world. If you guys have been exposed to that, fantastic. Um, I'm learning it myself right now. Um, I'm, I'm in a, I'm 10 months into a Ignatian retreat. They call it a retreat, even though it lasts like a long time. Um, so I'm learning it myself. This is a little different than that. So but this is more is really kind of a Bible study um, around discernment and how discernment is used in the scriptures. I mean, we'll do some flipping back and forth to different scripture passages. So ha- have your Bibles out. Um, so I want to start with this uh, teaching from Hebrews chapter 5, um, verse 14. It's a verse that all you guys know. Um, but it got me thinking a while ago. And Catherine and I started talking about discernment a few years ago and the question of discernment. And it was uh, catalyzed. The context for us was we were seeing um, Bible-loving, primarily I would describe as evangelicals, um, who we knew loved the Lord, and yet we were watching their leadership decisions, and we were utterly befuddled by them. And we were trying to understand why would evangelical leaders make decisions they're making, which would seem to have trajectories that would take them away from evangelical convictions or evangelical um, absolutes and evangelical strengths. Why would they make those decisions when we know that they love the Lord and believe in the Bible? And one of the things Kathy and I began to pray about together and think about together and actually realize that we've been trained in more implicitly than explicitly was discernment. That we had just been taught uh, through the ministries of our spiritual moms and dads here at Res, probably primarily by walking in the Holy Spirit, the importance of discernment and discerning spirits and discerning spiritual realities as well. And we started going, wow, that's, that's so interesting because our beloved evangelical peers, because now we're at the age where like, kind of our age is leading a bunch of stuff, which is all of a sudden it happens overnight. You're like, wait a second. I'm like, those folks are my age. Um, I always thought they were always kind of, you know, older, older, older. Um, our evangelical peers who love the Lord, love the word, had, had not necessarily been trained in discernment, like discerning where something starts and where it could end. Um, and so Kath and I started doing Bible work and discernment together and realizing I think it's really important that we're training our sons and daughters, how do you make a discernment? And how do you walk through a discernment biblically? And I was drawn immediately to this incredibly rich teaching here from the writer of Hebrews. And there is actually in a larger section around apostasy and the concern around apostasy that the writer of Hebrews has and hoping that um, that the church will be strengthened to not be confused. And the writer of Hebrews writes, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And I was so encouraged by that verse for my own self, because I want to be honest, I wasn't just being judgmental. I was looking at my peers and going, man, I'm vulnerable. 
why have we not had the same vulnerabilities? And, and we certainly could have the same vulnerabilities. What did we do? And I read, oh my goodness, I can have my power of discernment trained. I can grow in my ability to discernment. I can help others have the power of discernment. Because I actually think that one of the things that brings um, eventually sometimes cataclysmic results and bad fruit in gospel ministry from good people is discernment. I guess it's, it's, a, it's a lack of discernment. And so I realized I can have the power of discernment trained. How? Through a constant practice wherein I learn to distinguish good from evil. And to elaborate on the writer of Hebrews there, distinguishing good from evil can sound much more simplistic than it really is, right? I mean, it's like distinguishing, um, I mean, Saruman from Gandalf. That's not really that hard, right? But of course, Saruman started off like Gandalf. Saruman was Gandalf's mentor, right? And actually, that is hard. So like, like by the time we get to Saruman, you know, he's nasty. Um, and he's wicked. And he's, you know, creating all these nasty creatures that are worse than orcs, etc. Um, but Saruman didn't start out that way. And so actually, where was their discernment to begin to see a Saruman and go, what decisions is he making? And what trajectory, if he continues to make these decisions, where he and Gandalf are going like this in their wizard lives... <laughs> And then Saruman begins to go like this, right? And it's all good at first. How can I have more power to protect more people from Sauron and the encroaching evil? But it starts to go like this. So my question for us as leaders and for you guys as young leaders is when do you learn without a kind of hyper-judgmentalism, but when do you learn actually to judge properly when this starts happening? And just to, just to identify it and to go, okay, biblically, how do I understand that this is happening and that this could actually in five years be here? That's a distinguishing between good and evil. So discernment, okay, so let's do why discernment matters. First of all, foremost, discernment is a spiritual judgment. So we, we got to let ourselves get comfortable with the language of judgment. Um, our Lord rightly taught us that, and Paul put it explicitly, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says explicitly in 1 Corinthians 5, we do not judge those in the world. I mean, they don't, they're not regenerate. <laughs> so we actually have a, we have a ton of freedom, you guys, actually, in our relationship with those who are in the world. A ton of freedom to be close to them, to love them, to, oh my goodness, I have to say hi to Jillian, who just got, just got here for fall break. Yay! So I asked Jillian to come see Sorry, me because she just, she just got back from, from Michigan hey. yeah. where there's all kinds of interest in planning a church in the state of Michigan. Yeah. Yeah. Love you. Thank Sorry you for coming and saying yes. hi to me. I've been looking forward to this all week. Sorry for interrupting. I'll see you later. Yep, yep, see ya. Aw. I kept checking my text to see if she was, she was here yet. Uh, she got a ride from... Somebody on campus makes me so happy to have her home. Ah, praise the Lord. So, um, so we don't judge those, of course, that are, that, are, that are out. But we actually do provide, and again, this needs to be carefully contextualized, but I'm not teaching you guys, um, uh, you know, milk. I'm going to teach you solid food today. So this is kind of solid food stuff. And we do have to think about how we judge within the church. And again, that can go amok. That can be 
very painful. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not speaking to a judgmentalism. And you guys can ask me questions so I can even get more clear on this for you. But what I do want to say is that we need to enter into spiritual judgment. Um, and that's actually part of uh, solid food. All right, and how we do that. You'll, you see there that Paul said, excuse me, Paul. I, I don't, I'm not sure Paul did write Hebrews. Um, that verse 12 of chapter 5, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Um, but solid food is for the mature. Okay, so we're going to try to step into this in a mature way. We're going to say discernment is spiritual judgment. The word here for discernment is aesthesis. And aesthesis, you get aesthetics from that word. So in aesthesis, there is a perception by your faculties of sensing and experiencing. So in aesthetics, you, it's the study of how we perceive, how we see things with our faculties and how we experience things. Um, and so we actually want to have an aesthetic or an aesthesis of how we see and, per and perceive what's happening, which is to say, using aesthetics as a jumping off point, that spiritual judgment is more of an art than a necessarily always sequential and um, really, I don't want to say science because science and art shouldn't be juxtaposed so much, but um, that there's a way in which this is an aesthetic sort of entering in, you guys. There's an art to spiritual discernment. And it is different than knowledge simply by rational deduction alone. I celebrate rationality and the rational mind. We celebrate it. The church celebrates it. We love the rational. We're not our rational. We're not, we don't want to be irrational. But we also want to understand that we can't have a kind of reductionism of rationality alone, right? That's not the human person. So what you get when you get into discernment is we need rational deduction. We need that. But we also are going to need a kind of aesthesis, which partners with rational deduction, to sense, to, to know in a way that's beyond simply a rational knowing. We need both. But for good discernment, we'll, also, we'll often be operating in that aesthesis, that perception by our faculties of sensing and experiencing. So one way that, that, one, one way that gets very specific, and, and as you guys are building ministries over the years, leading on church staff teams, leading churches, is one thing we have to watch for in terms of, um, of what can happen if we're not doing discernment is paradigms and policies take over when there's not healthy discernment. Here's what I mean. You need policies in a church. You got to have some, we've got, we got some policies. But there's actually a significant problem when a church or any kind of a vibrant, thriving organization becomes dependent on policy to make judgment. That's a problem. And let me tell you, I've been watching like a watchdog our beloved cathedral during COVID. I'm watching it because I'm like, we got to have some policies. I, I understand that. We need to say, we ask you to wear masks when we're worshiping and singing in church. We have to have some of that. But what can happen in a season like this when we're all kind of going, what's going on? And we're needing aesthesis. We're needing discernment, right? More, more than ever. We can actually fall into policies because it's so exhausting and it's so challenging to use discernment on things. You can fall into policies for everything. So you have to do any discernment. And that happens to churches all the time. So I'm always going, I don't know, like maybe we should have 10 policies at res or 15, but we shouldn't have 200. And we moved to the building under my leadership we developed a policy culture here at Resurrection in 2012 and 13. And it's one of my significant regrets of the last 10 years. And it was my fault. Um, I allowed it to happen. I'm not policy-oriented myself. 
but I allowed it to happen. Why did I allow it to happen? Because I was overwhelmed by all the disservice needed to happen. Like, what do you do if a kid has a birthday party and they want to, like, do they rent the facility? If they're a member, do they not have to rent? They can just do it, but then who cleans up and what happens here? You're like, yeah, um, right? And so you start just going, well, you just need a policy for this. Well, we got about 25 of those things in the course of three months with a new building. We're like, policy, 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 policy. And honestly, what happened is I started doing some fundraising for our next initiative and meeting with people one-on-one, and I thought that they were hurt. They were, our, our, our members, they were hurt. And they're like, why were you hurt? All these policies. They don't feel like us. And I no longer feel like I was interacting with a person. I felt like I was interacting with a policy. Well, why did that happen? Because we actually stopped discerning. Like where we say, you know what? Like, let's just let them take care of that. Or let's actually err on the side of discernment and artistic element of this aesthetic element of judgment as opposed to policy, policy, policy. So you will often see that policy, if, if something is over-policied, there's probably not enough discernment going on um, of, of spiritual judgment. Okay, we also see um, discernment matters and, and we see that leaders in the scriptures are also talked about as judges. That leadership and judging actually go together. Uh, I can just read to you guys um, here. It's 1 Kings, you can, you can make a note if you want. 1 Kings 3.9. Okay, so we're getting into... Solomon's era here. 1 Kings 3, 9. Solomon prays, you guys know Solomon's wonderful prayer for wisdom, 1 Kings 3. Solomon prays, give your servant therefore an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to govern this your great people. That one of the things Solomon asked for in his leadership ministry is discernment. It's judgment between good and evil. So this will happen in small groups when you're leading a small group. And somebody brings something up and you have to work through, should that have been brought up here? Should that have been shared here? Maybe so, maybe not. Is one of my students, because you guys, like I talked about small groups this morning, are one of my students, are they in a trajectory actually toward darkness and confusion? And when do I step in? So not only am I discerning are they on a trajectory, Am I overactivated and concerned or am I underactivated and underconcerned? On the other trajectory, I got to discern that. They have to discern when do I step in? When is it too soon to step in? When is it too late to step in? You're doing this all the time in ministry. You're always discerning what's happening, where could this go, and then how do I act in light of this? Leaders are always making discernments, leaders are always making judgments. That's what leaders do. Okay, let me look at Philippians chapter 1. You guys can go there with me. Uh, Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. This is Paul's prayer for uh, the church in Philippi. Philippians 1, 9 to 11. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all aesthesis, all judgment, all discernment, the ESV uses the word discernment. So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, the glory and the praise of God. So, so that you're loving about more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So again, what we see here is that Paul is calling them into this kind of life of discernment. So what I want to say is not only are we leaders who are discerning, we, we need a sort of spiritual mothers and fathers who have this kind of discernment. And we want to multiply discernment among our disciples. So as you guys are involved in more and more discipling relationships, it's really key to be thinking, how am I discipling whoever I am investing in? 
in their own life of discernment? How am, I, how am I but myself learning how to judge between good and evil and the trajectories of good and evil and when to step in and speak out something around this? But how am I also teaching them to do this? And it is not too soon. It would be different for a sixth grader than it would be for an eighth grader than it would be for a junior in high school, but they all need to start learning it. And that's actually a creative work for you guys to think through. Okay, with whom I'm discipling, how am I teaching them discernment? We distinguish between good and evil. We have to try to track the trajectories of current ideas. So let me give some specific examples that are good and charged. Um, so as I work this through, um, I have to work this through on a few levels. So uh, about five years ago, I began to realize, no, more like probably seven years ago, but five years ago especially, I began to realize, okay, I've been doing a lot of works that God ministered to me in my life in my personhood around sexuality, and then with others over the last 25 years. So I've been in this ministry a long time, ministering into these issues, and, um, and was very concerned in the 90s that the language of sexual orientation was being embraced by evangelicals. And I was concerned, I didn't know exactly why I was concerned, but I had a kind of intuition that needed more rational thinking, honestly. But I was like, huh, once you say sexual orientation, this is 90s language, you're kind of giving somebody a sort of world to camp in if they are same-sex attracted. Like, it's not just that I'm same-sex attracted. It's simply that I have um, inordinate or disordered desire, but I'm actually oriented this way. I was like, huh. I, something about that phrase concerns me, but I, I didn't do a lot of, I wasn't doing a lot of teaching on it, and it just stuck in my head. Well, interestingly enough, the sexual orientation language of 1995 by 2005, and definitely by 2015, became the language of celibate gay Christian. Or, and again, the adjective matters to teachers like Dr. Hill and others who use it, but I can promise you in all the reading that I've done, celibate doesn't always make it in. So, and it's important to, to many thinkers, but it becomes just gay Christian. Celibate gay Christian, gay Christian. And so then I had to start thinking, okay, wait a second. Now, I've got writers and readers and thinkers, scholars, who are saying things like, we utterly hold to a biblical ethic of marriage. We hold to this. We're not going to compromise on this. Romans 1. But I'm hearing these same people say, but we also want to be able to embrace people coming out. And we're going to use the language of coming out. So we need to give young people a chance to come out. And to come out as gay Christians. And to understand themselves and posit themselves in this world or realm of of, of celibate gay Christianity, non, uh, still holding to Romans 1 when it comes to marriage gay Christianity, but gay Christianity. And I had a really important decision to make about five years ago. I was like, okay, can I go with that or not? And as a teacher of the Bible, I had to decide, could I teach that or not? So I, I made an thesis. I, I was making a spiritual discernment. But before I could make a complete judgment... I had to do a lot of rational work then. So I had a, a stirring. I had an intuition. I had a, that doesn't seem quite right to me. Um, but I couldn't just get up in front of our church and say, that doesn't seem quite right to me. I mean, that's not responsible pastoring, right? I'm not actually not doing the work of full discernment. So I had to engage this with rational thought. I had to work this through. And I had to say, where could this lead? What are the, tra the trajectories and what's the fruit that'll be born or not be born by this? And as I worked it out and I did a lot of reading, I did a lot of study, I did a lot of Bible work, I went, wow, I don't think 
this could be on my feelings or my intuition even, I'm not convinced that there can be a strong biblical argument made for putting a modifier as charged, engaged is the word, is what's like, it's like been used this way for 100 years. I mean, it's all a matter of language to me. You know, um, whether it's gay or homosexuality or whatever, I mean, these different words have currency for different eras of American vernacular. But that's the word we're being used right now. I thought, you know, I don't think there can be a good biblical argument for putting that modifier in front of the noun Christ one, Christ follower. I don't think we can do that. Um, and I had to work out that argument. And I ended up working it out in nine pages and just presented it to the College of Bishops a week and a half ago. Um, that was like five years of kind of working it through and reading it through and writing on it. Um, but what, why do I give that as an example? Because I actually had to distinguish, okay, these people that are saying these things are still brothers and sisters in Jesus. And I consider them such. They're family. They're not apostates. Um, and this is delicate. <laughs> and I need to be, as a matter of fact, I wrote West Hill because um, he and I had some interactions in the ACNA before West became Episcopalian, which West did become Episcopalian, um, which was an important thesis moment for me, by the way. Um, and so I'm in this process. Wes and I met a couple times, and I'm getting ready to teach on it publicly at Resurrection in 2017. So I wrote Wes ahead of time and said, hey, Wes, we're not super close, and I don't think you're worried about what Stuart Ruck thinks. Um, but I'm a bishop in your church, and I care about you, and I care about our relationship, and he's mentioned me as a friend in his blog, so I knew that we had some kind of relationship. So I said, hey, I'm going to teach contrary to what you teach. I think you're a brother, but I think you're really wrong on this element. Um, and here's why. And he wrote me back, actually, and said, hey, I'm glad to know that. You know, here's some more writing I've done on this. If you want to read more of what I've done, I've read most of it already, which I, but I appreciated it. We had a civil interaction, which I think was really important. But also really important for him to know, I, I think you're wrong on this, even though I still consider you a brother. That's delicate. That's, that's, that's kind of complicated. But it was a, it was a discernment. Um, I then found out, actually, in that same email, because Wes had been in the ACNA, Wes says, no, by the way, I said, let's, let's have lunch at our next ACNA gathering so we can talk more about this. He said, oh, no, I won't be at the next ACNA gathering. I'm becoming Episcopalian. Okay, so now I've been doing discernment. Now I'm doing kind of more full judgment, critical work, reading, analyzing, lots of discussion with lots of thinkers and theologians, um, advice, counsel. I come to that, and then I actually have another discernment. I need, we, we need to be able to own this and, and say, and I'm becoming an Episcopalian, which means he's going to go under a bishop who isn't, um, who isn't fully engaged in Orthodox Christianity, even though they might call themselves a moderate. Um, that was really an important process for me of discernment, where I went, you know what? West might still ascribe to certain things, but here's what, here's what we have to do in discernment. Where's this going to lead in 20 years? Where's this going to lead in 40 years? Um, right? I mean, wisdom is known by her children, as the Bible says. So as best as I can tell, what will the children of this thinking look like, if you will? The spiritual children of this thinking look like in 30 years. And we don't know for sure. And that needs to be put forward humbly. I can't make a declarative statement on that. I don't know that for a fact. Um, but I need to think about it, I need, and I need to project it. Okay, so this is, this is the solid meat work of what we're doing as leaders, and what we get into. Um, you'll hear a lot more from Catherine and me on women in ministry. And so I'll do a lot more there. I'll just mention it here as another example where this is why um, I'm as animated as I am, A, around women in ministry and leadership, because I actually think you don't get the fullness of the kingdom or the gospel or holy church or the Imago Dei, unless you have women and men in profound partnership and leadership and ministry. Fundamentally, that's my women in ministry thing. But I also think that when you depart from 
what I would argue, and you'll, you'll, you'll get this in fullness from me um, and Catherine, when you depart from what I would say is, I think, um, the most clear little reading of the scriptures, I think there is a reading of the scriptures around women's ordination to the priesthood that I think needs to be respected. Um, but the most clear little reading on the scriptures, but then also the practice of the Holy Catholic Apostolic Church in the East, the West, and Anglicanism until 1974, that when, that when you do that work, wow, just as a discernment to step out of a plain little reading of scripture, but especially the church's historic reading of scripture, to step out of both of those things um, and ordain women to the presbyterate, wow, I, I would need to have, I would need to have a lot of other elements around Bible and the life of the church to convince me to step out of that. Why? Because of discernment. Because I go, again, incredible believers who would hold to women's ordination to the priesthood. I, I, I get that. I'm aware of that. I've, I've lived with them, worked with them, partnered with them over many years, love them. But I actually think in my discernment would be, but where will this be in 30 years? Where will, be this, where will this be in 50 years? Um, if you can depart not just from a plain little reading of Scripture, but also depart from how the church has taught Scripture over 2,000 years, I must ask in my discernment, when else might one depart how the church has taught something? When, when else might one say, those guardrails, let's just take them off right now. We can drive off-road here. We'll be fine. When else might one do that? Again, is it a discernment? Can I prove it? I can't prove it. I, I don't know what will happen in 50 years. Um, I do know what's happened in 40 years since women have been ordained to the priesthood in the Episcopal Church. I do know that. I have that as, a, as kind of data. It has to be interpreted, and it's interpreted subjectively. So anyway, these are, the, these are the sermons. These are the kind of discernments that leaders have to make. These are not necessarily even the kind of discernments that a beloved follower of Jesus who's involved in the ministry in their workplace or their family life they only have to make all these discernments, honestly. Now, I want them to be discerning. I want them to be discerning. But there are certain, certain discernments that leaders have to make, that, that, that leaders as judges have to make. Okay. Something else that leaders do, not only are we discerning between good and evil, and this is still under why discernment matters, okay, is leaders discern between fine and fruitful. I know. You guys already make it. I know. I know. I always do that. You guys should know this by now that I do this to you. Like, I, I seem like I'm already on another section. I'm actually still in the same section. Um... So, leaders discern between fine and fruitful. This is really interesting. So this is, this is actually part of the art of leadership as well, is um, what's going to be not just a fine decision. Words, this isn't about good and evil. This isn't about like bad, bad or good. This is about what would be most fruitful. So, for example, take the decision to appoint deacons in Acts chapter 6. They had to do something around the racial inequity that was occurring. We had, we had a racial crisis there between Hebrews and Greeks. Um, and we had bias occurring. No question about it. Okay, so that, that's good and evil. That had to be handled. But what you were going to do with that, they could have had several solutions to that, of how they decided to fix that and, and speak to that. So, and several fine solutions. What they chose, interestingly enough, amidst a racial crisis situation in Acts chapter 6 is, hey, the gospel is intrinsically multiplying. It has a multiplying element to it. What if we took this crisis and actually out of it, we multiply leaders? And what if we multiply leaders and pastors who could care for these different widows in the distribution of the food? It was, it was brilliant. So these leaders discerned, hey, we also are called to keep our ministry focus as the apostolic band 
on prayer and the teaching of the word, but let's multiply leaders who can do this work here in service and pastoral ministry and leadership. Um, and so what we get is a discernment between fine and fruitful. And you will often find yourself in that place where it's not just good and evil, it's what's going to be best, what's going to be richest. Um, okay, another thing that the leaders are discerning, and my last thing under why discernment matters, is leaders have to discern the best fit for other leaders and apprentices that they're working with or disciples. So one thing that you're discerning a lot is what is going to be the best fit? How can I best position this leader, this, um, this apprentice, this person that I'm discipling? And that's a major discernment. That's why I love tools like Strength Finders, for example. That's why I love getting to know people in the vision statement, our vision workshopping that we did. That helps me even as I'm discerning with, with your guys, folks that are overseeing you all directly, your ministries and your callings. That's, that's what a leader does. I discern good and evil. I discern trajectories of good and evil. I discern, <laughs> you need me to help you? You good? I discern, um, I discern fine and fruitful. I'm going to move this. There we go. Yeah, we can. yeah, 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 yeah. Eddie, we'll just move some. Minnesota, um, if you're listening, we're just moving around things a little bit here. We're outside, as you might have picked up. There we go. Of course. Okay. So now, how is discernment practiced? Um, how, how, do we get into, how do we get into actually practicing discernment that we have to do? Okay. So first I'm going to talk about Scripture and the search in Scripture. Um, just look <clears throat> in, the, in Hebrews here. <clears throat> In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. A lovely and critical verse about doctrine of Scripture. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Uh, Chrysostom, when uh, reflecting on this early church thinker, wrote, we discern by continued hearing and experience of the scriptures. That's so good. That's so Eastern. I love it. Um, we discern by the continued hearing, but experience of the scriptures, right? And we're, we're going to get into preaching uh, this winter, which is going to be super fun. But what happens in the preaching of the word is that you experience the scriptures, right? That they are living, they're active. You're in that moment, you're, 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 you're with other people in this little Bible world all of a sudden. And so what happens when we, when we do scripture searching for discernment is that we experience the scriptures, we live the scriptures, we speak the scriptures, we hear the scriptures. Um, so as, as we're doing under, under scripture, think about scripture, we search the scriptures, right, for direction. We ask the scriptures to be to us a lamp to our feet. Lord, we want the scriptures to teach us and to guide us. And, um, you know, man, I've just so, so appreciated how, you know, the Lord called you to do a, a deep dive in a rich theological program, somewhere like University of Chicago, right? Storied, storied theological department and, 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 and an era of it. And yet I can see too that you still just have a love for the Bible and a love for the scriptures. What a gift that is. Not, not, I'm guessing not all your compatriots necessarily started that way or came out that way. 
but you've maintained that. That's so Bonhoeffer-like, right? So here's, here's what I love about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. There's lots of things I love about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, one thing I love about Dietrich Bonhoeffer is, of course, he was, you know, one of the great young minds. Was he the youngest to ever get a doctor, I think, in his German university? He was 21, yeah. <laughs> it's insane. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, he was, he had, he had genius level gifts. Yeah, two. Two earned doctorates. So, um, so you have Bonhoeffer with this incredibly gifted um, intellectual ability, and he's, uh, you know, he's, he's like in the heart of higher German critical thinking and all that. Okay. But what happens for Bonhoeffer when he, his family get, and his friends get him out of Germany? They know the impending crisis is coming. He's in Harlem, he's studying a theology, he's basically escaped, and he has a crisis of conscience. It's only like a matter of a couple of weeks before he goes back to Germany, right? How does he decide to go back to Germany? He's reading his Bible. He's reading his Bible, and he has a scripture verse that speaks to him, right? And, and, and he still is able to have a childlike faith where he says, wow, the Bible can speak to me in a personal situation with a personal verse, and I'm not wigged out about taking it out of context or manipulating the scriptures, which can, of course, happen. Right? Of course it can happen. But actually what happened was he discerned a critical juncture in his life because he read his Bible. And a Bible verse spoke to him and he thought, I need to go back to Germany. Now there were other discernment that was a part of that too. But the scriptures were at the heart of Bonhoeffer's critical decision. We can search the scriptures for direction. We can depend on the scriptures to help guide and lead us. Yes, it can become abused. Absolutely, you can have a proof texting kind of, kind of craziness. But... I'm expecting that you guys already know that. I'm not teaching you guys milk. I'm giving you solid food. And so I actually think that it takes maturity to be able to use the scriptures that way, to engage scriptures that way. But we should engage them that way. We should absolutely engage them that way. We also search the scriptures, not just for direction, but so that the scriptures will search our heart. Right? So we search the scriptures. Yes, Lord, guide and lead me. Your word is a lamp to my feet. But we also search the scriptures, not just to guide and lead us, but to guide and lead us about our own hearts so we can come under conviction, right? So the Bible can bring us under conviction and that gives a discernment. So um, there's just this really, and I've mentioned this a little bit to you guys, uh, there's this amazing thing happening down at Christ Tabernacle Church with schooling their children and Catherine's really involved. And, um, and it was just, it's just, it's, a, it's an act of God. It's a work of God. Okay, so everything in me, A, because it's just so beautiful in the gospel, but B, it would be the most legit virtue signaling ever if I could get in front of resurrection and say, this is so amazing. You know what we're doing right now? We're partnering with a black church on the west side of Chicago, educating the next generation of their children. I mean, A, it's a gospel celebration. And at some point, it should, the story needs to be told. But honestly, part of me is like, and then like all my 20-somethings and 30-somethings are like, oh, wow, great. Bishop Stewart isn't a total, you know, sold out white suburbanite 50-year-old guy. This is awesome. And, and I, was, I was moving that direction to give that announcement. And then I'm reading in the Bible. I'm doing my Bible reading. And I'm in Matthew, like, like, like if you're reading the lectionary, like we are. And it says, do not do your good works in front of men that you may receive their commendation, but do them for your Father who sees in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will bless you. I was totally convicted. I was so ashamed. I was like, huh. I was going to do the very opposite that the Bible teaches. I got caught up in the spirit of the age and virtue signaling, which I'm so quick to condemn myself. I mean, I was totally falling into it. I had a discernment. I had a discernment from the Lord. Now, we probably will tell that story at some point 
Um, you know, but I can't tell it till my heart's right. And certainly it wasn't right there. So um, I love how Bible scholar F.F. Bruce says, the word of God probes the inmost recesses, <laughs> the inmost recesses of our spiritual being. And Bruce continues, the word of God brings subconscious, that is to say, right, things that aren't yet in our consciousness, subconscious motives to light. Oh, praise the Lord. <laughs> so, of course, what we want to do as we search the scriptures, so they search our hearts, we want to have a personal relationship with the Bible. And that's key to discernment. It's just key to discernment. Okay. Um, now, you guys know you miss a Bible reading day because you're sick or because there was an interruption or because something happens. The, the Lord's love and grace is there. Um, but you're also mature enough to know you don't want to miss three Bible reading days in a row. You're going, to be in the, you're going to be in the red zone, right? And I know that too about my own life. Sometimes I miss a Bible reading day. Something happens or some of the kids happens or whatever. Um, it happens. Right? That's life. But three or four days in a row, you're in the red zone. Why? Because I can't come under conviction. I can't make discernments. Okay. <clears throat> we do scripture search for a biblical apologetic, and I already explained that. So, you know, I had, a, I had an aesthesis. I kind of had a perception around celibate gay Christian, but I needed to do a scripture search of discernment to create a biblical apologetic, to kind of make a biblical case. And it is really important that you learn how to make biblical cases, okay? Not to be polarizing, but to make good biblical judgment. So, um, Whenever, you know, I, I hear somebody who has a certain perspective on something, I'm super open, but I want to understand what's your Bible work. I think you should make a cogent biblical case for this, one that is convincing. So again, discernment does not in any way actually cancel that part out. It actually invites that part in. So learning how to make Bible cases is a key part of leadership. Key part of leadership. Okay. Um... How do we uh, continue to do discernment? We do it through spiritual work, through the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, and this, it, this is a work in which we're, we're looking for signs and wonders from the Holy Spirit. Let's see, 1 Corinthians 2, 12. 1 Corinthians 2, 12. I'll read this to you. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world. In my example that I gave you, I was, I was operating on the spirit of the world, a spirit of the world. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, 1 Corinthians 2, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but by taught by the Holy Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual, or even more literally, spiritual persons. Right? A spiritual is a spirit person. That's Gordon Fee. So when we come into discernment and we practice through scripture, scripture, we're also practicing through Holy Spirit signs. The Holy Spirit gives direction to the scripture direction. All right. So as you're in the scriptures, then it is good to be take, paying attention to when a scripture pops off the page. That's not overly subjective reading of the Bible. That's engaging the Bible in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's good to go, wow, there's an underscore there, or there's a, there's a stirring there, or something's happening for me there. Um, that's actually really important and really helpful. So the Holy Spirit gives direction to Scripture direction. I'll read to you from John chapter 6. 
Jesus is, uh, with, with his disciples. He says, um, and, and they, they've just had the multiplication, the fishes and the loaves, and kind of the, a proto, the proto-Eucharist. Um, and has taught them on eating my body and drinking my blood. After this, it says, verse 66 of chapter 6, John, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answers him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So, so Simon Peter is entering into the ministry of the Holy Spirit from Jesus saying, your words are the words of eternal life. We have nowhere else to go but to learn from your scriptures. So this is a very important place in discernment. Um, that, that when you come into discernment, you begin to practice it, you recognize that you're practicing it out of a profound spiritual poverty. You have nowhere else to go but the words of the Lord. You have no other direction. So again, we often think, man, I'm in really bad shape. I have nowhere else to go but the Bible. No, you're actually, now you're in the zone. Now you're in the follower of Jesus zone. This is not the anomalous zone that when things get really, really bad, you know, all I have is the Bible. No, actually, now you're in the freedom place. You're in the place of spiritual poverty where you have nowhere else to go. He has the words of eternal life. I mean, Simon Peter's like, he just said, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And hundreds of people just left our rabbinical school. All right, we just had a major church split, if you will. What am I going to do about this? He's the only one I can listen to. Even if it doesn't make any sense, these are the words of eternal life. And Peter had that incredible discernment that that was true about the Lord Jesus. So that happens in the power and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Um, also, the Holy Spirit gives supernatural signs. He gives ministries and wonders, signs, signs, signs of ministry and wonder. And this is definitely a key part of us making a discernment we don't want to be uninformed about the spiritual gifts, and we'll get into prophetic ministry next week, so this is a great, just a great preemptive for that. But we need to look to the Lord to say, Lord, I need you to move supernaturally. We don't test the Lord in terms of, you're not the Lord unless you do work supernaturally in my life. That would be a testing of the Lord. But we certainly have the freedom to ask the Lord, Lord, would you move supernaturally? I've, I've seen the scriptures I'm weak on this one. I'm, have mercy on me here. Um, would you provide some kind of spiritual sign, some kind of spiritual way or, or wonder? So um, Emmanuel Anglican, and well, you've probably heard some of the story. I mean, it started out of a spiritual sign and wonder where Catherine woke up in the morning and, and she said, Stuart, there's a conference that I was going to go to. This I'm not going to go because it's too much for the kids and Kate's. I'm not going to go. And Catherine said, no, you need to go to this conference. I just think you need to go to this conference. And I didn't have to go to this conference. You need to go to this conference. I was like, okay. I bought a ticket. Tuesday I went to this conference. Well, there I see Father Aaron. And we're like, let's go for a run. We go for a run. He's describing this job he's been proposing. He's been given stunning, stunning opportunity and job. Great job. Great church. And I say in the moment, oh my goodness, Aaron, this is in the moment. But um, would you consider not taking this job and coming and planning a church with me in Chicago? I've got six folks that want to plant a church in Chicago, North Side. Would you think about this? I know this is, a, you know, just like crazy in light of a great income, great job, great ministry. And Aaron says, I would consider that. I actually would. He was, he was surprised himself. I would consider that. Well, I began to feel like I was in the midst of a supernatural sign. I began to feel like God got me on this plane and got me at this conference that I wasn't even going to go to. And I've had this interaction with Father, with Father Aaron that I hadn't planned on. 
there was a supernatural sign and wonder. That then led to Aaron and Lori engaging this, where they then experienced, and it's their story to tell, a succession of supernatural signs and wonders that happened. I mean, the, the, the reason that we were totally free to plant a church, our first church plant in Minnesota, was that my brother, who had hoped to plant a church, had lost that dream. It's a long story, but he had failed his church planting assessment, among other things, thought he had lost a dream to plant a church in Minnesota. He and I are at another conference together, and a woman that we'd never seen before in our lives walks up to us and says, I had a dream about you last night, points to my brother, because he was wearing that shirt, and the Lord said to me in the dream, find that man with that shirt tomorrow at the conference and tell him um, if something along the lines of, do what I told you to do, which had been go plant a church, although he'd been told by assessors, don't plant a church. Go do what I told you to do. That's how we got Church of the Cross. That's how we got our first church. That's how we got Emmanuel. I mean, in a lot of other ways too. But supernatural signs. So like when you're discerning things like a church plant or a job position or a new ministry or a marriage or lots of things. Expect the Lord for signs and wonders. Expect Him for dreams. Ask Him for that. I'm so proud of the Magnusons. They're, they're just all in on this and God is meeting them with different signs and wonders up in Appleton right now. Um, Trevor and Bonnie had a complete supernatural experience around a nocturnal dream as well when City of Light was planted in Aurora. This is how we discern these things. Okay, the Lord wants to give these things to us. Doesn't mean He always gives them, by the way. Sometimes He asks us to operate off of what we've read in the scriptures and what our peers see around us. He, he doesn't have to give them to us. Right? We don't test them. His character isn't dependent upon it, right? But he loves to, and he so often does. Okay, we also want to have not only um, a scriptural search and signs of the Spirit, we want to have a sacramental solidarity. What am I talking about with sacramental solidarity? Um, well, some of you guys heard me preach to the college students last week. I'm talking about participation. I'm talking about... Um, what, the, uh, what Luke calls the koinonia, or the fellowship. And koinonia is a very sacramental word. It's used for church. It's also used for Eucharist by the Apostle Paul and by Luke. So Luke uses it in Acts 2, the fellowship, the solidarity, the participation. And then um, Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 10, koinonia. Um, so what you want to do when you're discerning is you want to be discerning in a sacramental way, which is you're asking this, what has the church thought? Okay, so if you're making a, again, for me, as I'm making a theological discernment around women's ordination or around gay Christianity, I'm, I'm going to actually do this in solidarity. I don't do this by myself. I'm going to do this in sacramental solidarity, but I'm going to ask, what is the church thought? What is the fellowship of believers thought? So that's one thing you want to ask when you're making a discernment. But you also want to ask, particularly if it's not a discernment necessarily theologically, as much as it is life circumstance, for example, what does the church think? which is to say, what does my small group think? What does my prayer partner think? And then, of course, what do the elders who I'm in a relationship think? Um, so so when, when you put together a scriptural search, right, and the life of the scriptures with Holy Spirit ministry and, and hunger, like the Holy Spirit hunger, Lord, we have nowhere else to go but you, and we need you to show us the scriptures, and we need you to show us signs and wonders with sacramental solidarity. What is the church thought? What does the church think? You can make great decisions. <laughs> you can make incredible decisions. You can make God-given, fruit-bearing, multiplying decisions. But it so often doesn't happen. One of those three might happen. A lot of what happens is, honestly, our emotional life runs it. And, um, and we spiritualize our emotional life, right? Um, 
And I, I, I teach this, and part of me feels like, man, I shouldn't be teaching this to you guys. This is so obvious. This isn't helping you at all. Um, but then I go back and I look at where I see really bad decisions being made by, by peers and sons and daughters, and I go, ah, but they didn't do all three of these things. <laughs> at one point, at some point, they, they did two or three, or they, they kind of worked, you know, they did a workaround on one of them. And I go, ah, I actually think if they'd just done Scripture, Holy Spirit, sacramental solidarity with the church, they could have been spared incredible pain or even spared fine rather than fruitful, right? Okay. How can our discernment be compromised? So we've talked about, you know, what is discernment? It's judging, it's a thesis. We've talked about how we discern in these three different categories. How can discernment be compromised? Well, first of all, it's very important that, of course, we realize that our discernment is compromised by our own profound sin nature. And you've all heard me teach on this. I think one of the sort of most activating elements of our profound sin nature is self-deception. And I think that is the teaching of the Apostle John. If, if, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So active in the reality of our sin nature is our capacity to self-deceive. So again, this is where especially sacramental solidarity really matters. Because you can read the scriptures and self-deceive, and you can manufacture signs and wonders that you think maybe are a sign of wonder from God and interpret them in a way that self-deceives. But when you take both those things and you come into a sacramental solidarity and you listen to your prayer partner, to your spouse if you're married, to your small group that knows you, to your elders who have more experience in the, in the life of the Spirit and life of the Scriptures than you do, and you put all those things together, you have a great sense of security that at some point your self-deception is going to be confronted. <laughs> at some point, your confusion will likely be confronted. Um, but that is definitely a place where discernment is compromised. Two, um, our discernment can be compromised by exhaustion. And that's actually super important. It's very practical but super important, which is that when we're in a highly exhausted season of life, um, it's really good to identify that and to go, wow, I'm going to need even more of the three processes, Scripture, Holy Spirit, and, and sacramental solidarity more than ever. And especially when it comes to sacramental solidarity, I might have to lean on that even more than ever because I don't know, I'm just really tired. I'm just not thinking well. I'm not feeling well. <laughs> um, I'm exhausted. There's a new kid in the family or there's a new job or there's been a geographical move or your stuff's getting stirred up. It's like, you know, some of your core issues, you know, is they're getting stirred up and you got abandonment issues and an abandonment thing happened in your life. And now you're 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 exhausted by that. It's very important to identify that to go, man, this is happening right now. Um, If I do have to make a discernment, sometimes we have to make a discernment in that situation. I need to really work my three stages to come to a good discernment. Discernment can be compromised not only just by exhaustion or self-deception, but what I would call circumstantial urgency. Okay? Discernment gets compromised by circumstantial urgency, which, which is this. Now, 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 now. I had to make a decision. Now, 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 now. Or even somebody externally is saying, this has to be decided right now, right now. This isn't to deny that there is sometimes a circumstantial urgency. Sometimes it's a thing. It's a real thing. But I am utterly convinced at this stage of my life that, not nearly, that things aren't nearly as urgent as circumstances want us to believe they are or as people around us want us to make them become. Okay? There are still some where I get it. There is true. 
But almost, almost, this, and, as I, and as I disciple my, even my older kids, I'm like, well, that may be according to that company or that professor a deadline, but one of the great things to learn in life is, can we change the deadline, please? <laughs> sometimes the answer is no, but sometimes the answer is yes. Um, so actually, urgency has to be thought through carefully. And I get concerned that when there's a circumstantial urgency and we feel like we have to make a determination and, and, and a decision, we don't have time to go through our three areas. We don't have time to do self-examination. We end up making decisions that didn't have to be made in the moment. We just thought they did. One of the great geniuses um, around this in his leadership was George Washington. And as I've studied his life, um, I think one of his greatest gifts, um, besides a profound humility, thanks be to God, we have such a humble leader um, in, in, in so many discernment areas. And I know Washington is controversial now, and I think it was a grave sin that he did not release his wife's slaves. It was a grave sin. And it was because he wanted Mount Vernon, frankly. He wanted the life of a Roman gentleman farmer. Um, that was a sin. But one thing he was really good at is he knew when it was truly urgent and when it wasn't. And he realized in military um, strategy and tactics, when we got to go across um, a freezing cold river in the middle of the night, um, but when we don't, and when we can hold, and when we can wait, he knew when to wait. He knew when to act and when not to act. Um, as I've studied his life, it's, it's really impressive. So here's what, here's what you'll hear me say if you're around Res for a while. It's not urgent till the Holy Spirit says it's urgent. So I get presented with urgencies all the time. Stuart, it's urgent. It's March and it's urgent. We can't make a decision about COVID, right? I get a phone call. We can't make a decision about COVID. Okay. So my first reaction when I, when I hear that is, it's not urgent till the Holy Spirit says it's urgent. I know we need to make a decision. I accept the decision needs to be made. I accept I have to make that decision. I accept all of that. But it's not, I, I'm not going to make a decision in the space of compression unless I absolutely have to. Hold on, let's take a day. Can we take two days? Can we take a day rather than just an hour? Let's do that. Can we take an hour rather than just 10 minutes? You know, you may have to negotiate this. Um, but this is really important. Because here's what happens when circumstantial urgency comes flying your way. You will, you will want to fix something, right? So many of us want to fix things. I love um, trying to fix situations. Um, I way overactivate in trying to fix situations. I like to fix people. Um, yeah, I just, I do. I, I like to do it. And it's, 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 it's a problem. Um, but I do. Ask Catherine. Um, so... What happens in a, uh, uh, when I get into an urgent situation is if I don't take a moment to discern and move into that mode, I'll move into a fixed mode. Well, then let's fix it. Let's fix it right now. And let's find a policy that can help us fix it. Right? Right? Um, when I'm in circumstantial urgency, I will feel a need to defend myself. So all of a sudden what's going on is I have to make a decision as a leader. So I better make a decision because I want to defend myself as a leader so everyone thinks that I'm a leader. Again, I'm in, I'm, in this, I'm in this space here where I'm, I'm not in a scripture mode. I'm not in a Holy Spirit mode. I'm not in a sacramental solidarity mode. I'm in a, I got to fix this because there's the pressure for me to fix this. And I got to defend myself so that no one critiques me. And you cannot believe how many leaders make decisions so that they're not critiqued later. And then they make a bad decision and they're critiqued worse. Um... We can also just feel the need, you know, that like, if I don't make a decision right now, not only do I need, I need to do it to impress others, I want to just do it to protect myself. So I'll make a quick decision so I can protect myself. 
So you get to work these three different S's. Um, really, really important. Um, one of the ways of circumstantial urgency, I know we're at 1230, will present itself to you will be when you need to make a judgment about um, a text or a, uh, a posting um, or an instant message that you receive. This will be one of the key kind of practical places in which a discernment needs to be made. Think of it as critical. So um, part of what happens for me is when I get something like that, I get anxious. I feel anxious. This person is upset with me. They don't like me. I feel hurt. And that was mean. So my reaction to that is I want to take care of it right away because I want it to go away. Um, so I'm going to respond right away. I want to get it out of my inbox. I want to take a deep breath and I want to act like it never happened. That's what I would like to do. Um, but actually, that's, that's not discernment. So instead I have to go, okay, actually this isn't urgent until the Holy Spirit says it's urgent. And I need to get to get to a place where I can love this person. Um, so I need to respond right away maybe by saying, I will get back to you in the next few days. You know what I mean? So I'm, I'm, I want to be polite. I want to be mannered. But I actually, I'm not going to let their urgency in the email, everything's falling apart, or you've remained silent, and you know, blah, blah, whatever. Um, how, how dare you? All those things. I don't want to let their urgency actually provoke my urgency. I'm going to go, no, it's not urgent until the Holy Spirit says it's urgent. So that's one of those places where circumstances of urgency that's, that's really, really key. Um, final uh, compromise of discernment besides self-deception, exhaustion, circumstances of urgency is people-pleasing. Um, where we really have to get clear um, as I make this discernment, am I making this discernment to please somebody else? Um, and when you're making a decision as a leader, you're making a judgment, here's often the calculus in the equation you're going to have to work out. You'll often have to decide this. Um, who do you want to disappoint? You will disappoint somebody in making a decision. Who do you want to disappoint if you're going to disappoint somebody? And work that through. So let me give you a very live example. I had to make a decision in June. So I went on vacation for a lovely eight days in June. I came back and the turmoil of George Floyd's killing had reached a level that it had not reached before I left for vacation. And, so, and, and I was way away. I was in Door County. <laughs> I was way away. I wasn't, wasn't reading stuff. I wasn't thinking about stuff. I was just living life with my family. And I got back and we sat down with leaders and they went, oh, wow, yes, this is... And I'd made a statement and I'd done some things already, of course, but... We need more. We need more teaching. And I realized, okay, so I have a discernment I have to make. Am I going to use the phrase systemic racism or not? I had a discernment. And I had about six days to decide. Now, honestly, I would like six months to decide. I really would have, not to put it off. That takes a lot of careful thinking. There's a lot of different connotations to language systemic racism. It isn't an easy decision to make, actually. And there's, there's actually cogent arguments that are even sympathetic to the race issues and divisions as to why one shouldn't use that phrase. I would like to have been versed in those cogent arguments as well as the cogent arguments to make them. I, would have, I, I wanted six months. I didn't have six months. I had six days. So then I had to decide, okay, if I use this phrase, I'm going to disappoint certain people. And if I don't use this phrase, I'm going to disappoint certain people. Mm. And I don't want to disappoint anyone because I'm Stuart and everyone loves me. Oh, man, that was super hard. I was like, well, first of all, what do I think with the study that I have under my belt at that point? Uh, 
I think that there's a biblical argument for powers and principalities and systems that are overtaken by sinful people. So I think I can make a cogent biblical argument here, properly qualified. I'm going to disappoint some people from a certain conservative mindset, mostly a certain generation that I love dearly and that are really important to me. And when they hear me use this phrase, they're going to be really disappointed that I used it. But there's people who have actually experienced it. And if I don't speak it as their leader, then they're going to feel like I don't think it's true that they've experienced it. And they have experienced it. And biblically, I can make a coaching argument that it's a real thing. So I had to decide who to disappoint. That was a discernment. That was an anesthesis. That was a real life moment where I had to make that decision. And um, I won't over, you know, I mean, it was a very hard decision for me to make, to be honest with you. Um, I love some of those folks that were very disappointed I made that phrase. I, they mean a lot to me. And I don't think they're necessarily racist because they don't like that I use that phrase. I'm not going to typify them that way. I actually think, I think they're wrong because <laughs> I used it and they didn't want me to use it. So we got to be respectful and say they're wrong. But I love them deeply. It was a really hard decision. But that's the kind of discernment that I think we have to make. But man, could that have been compromised. And believe me, I have compromised for that people-pleasing reason. But that's a really powerful factor when making discernment. So um, as you guys work this through and think this through, um, I, I think this at least gives you the beginning for a tool, if you will, a leadership tool that you'll need, you need to use over and over again um, it's 12.35, but maybe like five minutes of just kind of question or dialogue. Um, sorry, I was 15 minutes late to that appointment. We, we had had 15 minutes, 20 minutes to talk. But initial thoughts, Matt, just kind of dialoguing about this, and then we can... Yeah, Will's done so much work on that. Mm. Yeah. So Matt's question, uh, Minnesota, is um, in light of a sexuality training that our youth leaders were given and kind of how do we interact for just as a, as a case study um, where we've got a youth um, who has made the decision to come out, go into an active um, same sex relationship of some kind, um, you know, kind of how do we handle that in, in light of discernment? Um, so I do think, okay, so I do think, again, um, in that moment, I think we have to have the freedom to say, um, this is really important, what you just shared with me. And um, I, have, I have some clear understanding of what the scriptures say about this. So you're not, like, it's not like you're saying, I need to decide what I think about this. But I, I would like to take some time to pray about the best way for me to give you a response. So again, 
what you're doing is you're giving yourself time and space to discern. You don't need to discern if you think it's right to go out on a date with the same sex. You know that. But you do need time to go, how do I handle this? So give yourself space. So you just create space there. Um, and, then, and then you're going to have to legitimately follow through, of course. Um, but you create space. Okay, so that's I think, is one way. That's just a, a, a kind of tactic, if you will, to give yourself space and discernment. Um, and this gets into some things, too, I think, that's beyond this. But I think then one of the discernments that has to be made at that point, Matt, I think, um, and it's a little bit different with youth. I would push more into it with youth than I would with an adult. But I have to decide, do I have a rich young ruler or do I have a Zacchaeus? Right? So we're always trying to decide when we're in pastoral relationships with people. If I've got a Zacchaeus, then they're climbing up into a tree going, I want to see Jesus. And it is not impossible with our Gen Z's muddled thinking and influence of the world that they may both be saying, I'm coming out as, as gay, lesbian, bi, whatever, and I still want to see Jesus. That is possible, <laughs> very possible in their adolescent confusion, right? And so if I've got that, if I've got even a Zacchaeus inkling, um, then, I, then, then I'm going to be discerning, okay, how do I speak into their life on this? Either they're just telling me, they're informing me, not including me. I still would feel the freedom to do that. Um, if I've got a rich young ruler who is really, I'm decided, this is what I've done, I'm self-righteous about it, um, then my discernment is going to have to be more around, okay, as the Lord, as I said, the Lord loved him. Um, he went away sad, the Lord loved him. Okay, now my discernment is, how do I love them amidst their rich young ruler pride? And we, we, against their rich young ruler locked in this. How do I love them now? And um, that could include them going away sad. Um, okay, well, how do they go away sad? Well, then my discernment is, what do I need to say to them from the scriptures to actually provoke a sadness? Um, and I think in that case, you know, that's where, again, uh, we might think, oh, I don't want to touch this. No, 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 Jesus touched it, right? I mean, he said, here are the scriptures. Um, and I've done all those things. Oh, well, then go sell everything you have and give it to the poor, um, which is scriptural teaching as well. He applies it there, and then he goes away sad. So at what point do I need to even say to them, okay, well, if this is your decision. Here's the teaching of the scripture. And I have to be willing to let them go away sad. And that means I'm really loving them. Um, so obviously you're working that through with Will and others, of course. But I, that's where I would go. I'd get myself space. I would discern, do I have a Zacchaeus? Or do I, you know, who I can invite into my house, if you will. I, you know, Zacchaeus, like, I'm coming into your house. I invite myself into their house. I've got that kind of openness and humility. Do I have a rich young ruler? Um, if it's a Zacchaeus, we're going to get in the house together. We're going to do relationship together. We're going to, you know, do that. Or if it's a rich young ruler, I'm going to have to give them scripture that will probably leave them sad. Totally. And gives you space to also go, okay, now where am I going to want to please them in a way that's not healthy? Um, where, where, uh, yeah, absolutely. You can, you can often do that as a pastor. There are some situations where you're like, I got to do something right now. Like, I mean, I see this person again. I mean, I have a relationship with them. And those are really hard situations. But in a pastoral relationship, absolutely. Well, we'll we, we will definitely get it out and available. It's, um, one of the theologians on the College of Bishops, he's not doing his work on it. Um, but I, I, I'd be glad to get you a version of it. Just remind me. Yeah, 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 just remind me. 
Um, but I need, I need to read the comments from the theologian and um, I may want to wait on the draft. I got to see if I agree with them fully. He's really good. Um, he'll be totally orthodox. It's just a matter of in integrating it. Yeah, Kill. Yeah, so um, I was just thinking of this when it came to like the sense of urgency and obviously in discernment, like within ministry, it's like there's times where people are going to say things are super urgent, but the Holy Spirit hasn't necessarily convicted you. Yeah, really yeah. Someone brings something up to you as urgent, and the Holy Spirit convicts you in that moment. Yeah. It is urgent. Yeah, or maybe it's even like a suicidal thing. Yeah, exactly, right? So it's just like really like split second, like super urgent out of nowhere, and you don't always have that time yes. to kind of step back and assess. Yes. Like what, what have you done to, to navigate those situations? Yes. Because when I think about it, I'm like, that stresses me out more than any other <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> um, um, I'll go to Bonhoeffer. You act and act boldly. So then you act. You just engage in action. Um, because at that point, and, and, and you're right, that's a discernment in the moment, but sometimes the moment itself is very clear. Like, yeah. I'm, cons- I'm going to go home and commit suicide. Yeah. I'm telling you that right now. Um, or something less dramatic even. So I do think that that's where you step into Bonhoeffer's, you know, uh, Lutheran theology, where you act, you act boldly, you might even sin in your action. It's very possible. But I think, I think, again, in the Bonhoeffer calculus, it's better that you acted than not acted amidst a gospel-urgent situation. Um, and there's steps to take, for example, with, with a suicidal student or person. We've got really clear steps to take. Um, have you guys been trained in that yet? We should make sure you get trained in that. Okay, good. Good, 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 good. good. I, I figured you had been. Um, so, but that'd be my short answer. And, 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 and then um, the way I put that to Caleb, this is what I feel like... Um, when we get drawn in situations of urgency that really are urgent, uh, you want to be, as a pastor, part of the United Nations peacekeeping force. You want to be wearing the blue helmet, which is what the United Nations guys wear. And you want to be kind of like, hey, I'm just here as a neutral party. I'm Switzerland. You know, like, like I'm, I'm not, I'm, not like, I, I'm just neutral. I'm a pastor. I love everybody. Um, rarely is a pastor given that opportunity for long. Because once you act in those circumstances, you're no longer United Nations. <laughs> you've taken a side likely or you've made a judgment. And you may have made one poorly and you'll have to realize later, I've got to repent. I may have to apologize to them, apologize to the Lord, you know, like, but I stepped in and acted. And, and I want our leaders to have the freedom to do that, knowing that I may act and act boldly and have done the wrong thing. And then I need to repent later. But I'd rather have our leaders do that than um, not step in. That's a great question. Yeah, Christy. Well, when you're exhausted, too, you don't always know you're exhausted. And also, how do you not, not be exhausted? Yeah. 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 So that is where um, I do think that's where solid and frank ministry partners are really important. Christy's question was, what do you do when you're exhausted? Um, that's where I think we need people, actually, first, who will tell us that. So, I mean, I'm just, Catherine is very, very good at that with me. Um, she'll also say, she used to say to me when I, when I was a younger priest, I would be really tired um, often in May or June, cause my, the ministry year. And I might try to do some prophetic ministry. And after she'd be like, that was so garbled and not clear. Like when you're that tired, Stuart, just stick to the liturgy. Like just pray the liturgy. Um, so having that kind of discernment of, okay, you're really exhausted is really key. I think if, if you're in a, that place of exhaustion and yet a decision does need to be made, 
A, push for as long as you can to not make it. Um, you know, until even you can get out of sheer exhaustion to some exhaustion, it's better. Um, but B, really leaning on those around you then for that discernment and being willing to really humble yourself and say, I really don't know. What do you think? Yeah. I'm too tired to know right now. Or we're too tired. This could happen for a couple because often a couple experiences these things together. So we're too tired to know right now. What should we do? All right. That was great, you guys. Fun morning. What a joy. Very fun. All right. So Holy Spirit prophecy next week. Yeah.